0: Friends, as you're taking your seats, would you turn with me uh, once again to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 23, where we will uh, wrap up this section that we began back in Matthew 24 uh, about uh, questions um, uh, concerning the return of our Lord Jesus. A few weeks ago, Pastor Sean mentioned to me that uh, the vacation plans had changed for his family and that I would be preaching a different text than originally scheduled And I, you know, sort of initially said, yeah, no big deal. And he said, well, before you say that, this one's the sheep and the goats. I'm sorry to do this to you. And I said, I forgive you, sir. So let's turn our attention now to Matthew chapter 25, what uh, many often think to be a hard passage, but one I think that we will find great comfort in today. Friends, turn your attention with me now to Matthew 25, beginning in verse 31. Beloved friends, this is... The living and active Word of God. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on His left. Then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by My Father. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Indeed, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Let's pray to him now that he would nourish us this morning. Our Father in heaven, we trust in the power of your word. We trust in the power of your promise. We pray today as we consider this great and glorious promise from your word that Jesus Christ shall come again. We pray that that would comfort us today. We pray it would be of a great hope for us to be among his sheep. Do that work in our hearts today. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Most of you, I believe, are familiar with fairy tales. I think most of you are probably most familiar with fairy tales through the Disney versions, though. Is that fair? You've watched the movies. Uh, Some of you have hired the princesses to come to birthday parties. You've uh, bought the merch and everything that goes along with it, right? But did you know the original fairy tales that a lot of the Disney movies and shows that were based on, did you know they were originally terrifying, incredibly violent, and it was a children's book? And you often wonder, why did uh, the, 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 the Grimm brothers in particular, why did they do that? Why did they write stories to terrify children? Well, they were intended to. You think about it, you you think about the lessons, right, from the fairy tales, you probably want to teach your kids that woods are dangerous. Maybe you'll trip across an old lady's house there and she might not be nice to you. She might offer you candy and sweets and you probably shouldn't take those because you cannot trust strangers, right? The original fairy tales were intended to terrify and scare children into obeying them. Obeying good, common-sense lessons. Many people today accuse Christians of doing the same, of using the Bible to terrify them into belief, don't they? Maybe you've heard a phrase, something like, uh, yes, I want to scare you, I want to scare you out of hell and into heaven, or something along those lines. Matthew 25 might be the chief among the texts of the Bible used for that purpose. To show that Christ is terrifying. And if you don't get it right, there is judgment and there is hell waiting for you. You can imagine that could be used in that way. But I want to say this morning, that's a misuse of this passage. That's a grand misunderstanding of the story that Jesus tells us in Matthew 25. I think there are reasons that non-Christians may be afraid of this. But I think this passage was not intended to terrify them or you, but instead to encourage you, to urge you. That's what I see in Matthew 25, and I want you to see this morning as well, that Matthew twenty-five, in Matthew 25, Christ urges his disciples to faithfulness and watchfulness with a final picture of his glorious return. Matthew 25 is not here to terrify us, but to encourage us and to urge us. And we see that, I think, through two urges in particular. Jesus urges us first with a promise of glory. Now, you know, promises of future rewards are very effective, aren't they? Parents tell their children all the time, you know, if if you obey and you stop screaming in the back seat, we can stop for ice cream on the way home, right? If you obey me and you do this thing, I promise I will do a good thing for you afterwards. But that's not what we're talking about today. That's not the promise of glory that Jesus gives. His promise here is different because it's about His reward, not ours. The promise of glory we see in Matthew 25 is not about your glory. Look with me again at verse 31. We're told that the Son of Man comes in His glory. And where does He sit? There at the end of verse 31, on His glorious throne. Two times in one verse, Christ promises that the Messiah, the Son of Man, that Jesus Christ will return in glory and will sit in glory. I want to tell you this morning that that glory that we read of uh, in this prophecy of Jesus is the glory given to Him by God His Father. This is the fulfillment of of John chapter 17 where, where Jesus begins His high priestly prayer by saying, It is, Come, Father, glorify Your Son. And here we see that on the great and glorious last day, The Son will come in glory and will sit in glory. Christ will be given what rightfully belongs only to Him as the Son of God. Jesus Christ will have divine glory, which will be seen both with the eyes and seen in that metaphorical sense through His actions and deeds. Jesus comes the second time with power and dominion as a conqueror. You know this. We've heard this. But Jesus tells us he adds to that return this emphasis of glory. It's the opposite of the birth in the manger, isn't it? It's the opposite of the Christmas story where Jesus is born lowly and in a cattle stall, right? We sing that every year. Now, this is the opposite of Isaiah's prophecy, that there will be nothing to, to, to grab our attention from him. He will be unremarkable in view in his earthly ministry. Jesus says, the second time is different. The second time is loud. The second time is huge. It is unmistakable what is going to happen. Recently, I was uh, reading a book uh, about Jesus as the king of glory, and the author tells a story. I didn't know this. I just recently learned this. There's a tradition during Handel's Messiah that if you go to a, a performance of Handel's Messiah, you're supposed to stand during the hallelujah chorus. Many of you are shaking your head yes, as though, Jim, why didn't you know that? Well, I do now. And he says it comes from this story. I don't know if this is true. He didn't say it was true. He just said the story goes... That King George II, during the inaugural performance of Messiah, during the Hallelujah Chorus, he stood. And the author reflected on why that may be. And he said this, that King George II of all people knew, you stand in the presence of glory. Friends, there is coming a day where we will stand. And witness the glory of Jesus Christ. From the lowest to the highest. From the most insignificant to kings who rule nations. Jesus tells us that he will return. And nothing will be like anything that he is or does. It will be a day to never forget. Because we will not be able to forget the glory that we behold on that day. This is what Jesus has been telling us in Matthew 25. Right? We saw it in the ten virgins. The virgins knew when the master returned. It was unmistakable. It was like the pillar of fire and smoke in the Old Testament. It was undoubtedly God there with his people. The glory of God leading his people into the wilderness, and eventually the promised land. The servants with the talents, they knew because the master came. Why? To settle accounts. Friends, this day will not sneak past you. It has not already happened. And if it were to be today, it would be undeniable. Revelation 1 verse 7 tells us that Jesus is coming back "...with clouds of glory, and every eye shall see Him." And not just every eye then living. Not just every eye of of those alive on the earth at the time. No, look at verse 32. Jesus tells us that before Christ will be gathered all of the nations... Every human from every tribe and every tongue and every culture from every time and era of history. All of humanity will be gathered before Jesus to witness his glory. Friends, that is the day that is coming. And while it seems to be a a minor theme... In Matthew 25, I mean, we haven't even gotten past verse 32 yet. You're wondering how long the sermon's going to be. Right? It's not minor, it's not a small thing. We need to understand the weight of what Jesus is saying to his disciples. Jesus is doing the unthinkable for that day. He's not merely claiming to be the son of David, the rightful king to the throne of Israel. No, Jesus is claiming. That He will sit, the Son of Man will sit upon the throne of God. That the divine glory Jesus receives, He receives as the God-man. Right? This is uncontroversial to us today. We, we know this. This has been drilled into Christians for millennia. But imagine, just imagine hearing this for the first time. Jesus is claiming the rightful throne of God as a man. Yes, as the son of David, but also as the son of God. Do you see why this promise of glory urges you today? Do you see the payoff? Right? Who is glorified? Who is given the divine throne? Who is given power and dominion over all, not just of all the nations, but over all of creation? It is a human being. Someone who is just like you. With ten fingers and ten toes. With a voice, with eyes to see and ears to hear. The one who sits on the throne of God is the one who knows our weaknesses, who knows our struggles. The one who receives the divine glory is our older brother, who knows what it's like to be me and you. So is Jesus scaring us into obedience, or is he inviting us into it? Is he trying to terrify us and say, if you make the wrong choice, if you make a mistake, you're you're going straight to hell? I don't think so. Not at all. In fact, I think the opposite. He is comforting his people with this promise that Jesus Christ will one day return. Not might, not maybe, not hopefully. He will return in glory And he will sit on the throne of God. Who else would you have sit there for you, friends? Who else would do? Who else do you want to receive divine glory and power and dominion? You think it's you? Do you think you really want that? You want that level of control? Do you really want that level of responsibility? To get everything right? Or is it so much better? That God became man. That he might empathize and th- sympathize with you and me. And then he gets to sit on the throne. Both as God and our older brother. Friends, Jesus is coming again. And he urges you with this promise. He will be glorified. And so your hope is not in vain. Your desire is. Your desire for justice is not in vain. And though, as the author of Hebrews says, we don't currently see everything in subjection to Jesus, though this day has not yet come because we will see it, we can be assured that it is happening nevertheless today. Right now, Jesus Christ is on His throne. Though we have not beheld him yet in his glory, he nevertheless has been given all authority and power. And with that, he says, I am coming soon. Amen, Jesus. Come. The master will return. And it's only once we have established that fact. The fact that Christ promises he will return with glory, can we understand his second urge to us? And that is, he urges us on to watchfulness and faithfulness with an assurance of his judgment. Okay, now we can get to the rest of the passage. Now, in the context of of understanding the glory of Jesus, we can understand what comes through this judgment. And I want to suggest to you this morning that this judgment can be broken up at least into three parts. Three easy parts. First, the separation. Second, the gift. And third, the punishment. All right, so let's look at that separation first. Christ comes in glory and he sits on his throne and everyone's gathered in front of him. Second half of verse 32 and he will separate people from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. You see, Jesus borrows a a metaphor. A metaphor from local shepherds of his day, where they would have mixed flocks of both sheep and goats. And that at some point, usually at night, they would need to separate the sheep from the goats. They would need to be separated uh, for a number of reasons. But but one of the main reasons I understand is that because goats are unusually aggressive. They're, they're very aggressive. They're territorial. They fight with each other over food. Therefore, sort of first instinct is to fight. Right? And my, my brother-in-law, he, he worked with goats for a while, and I called him up and I said, hey, man, I'm, I've never seen a goat in real life. I feel like, um, I know sheep, I've been around sheep in Scotland, but like goats, they're, they're, you know, he's like, you're not the only one. They confuse, right? He said, the number one thing we learned is that goats are only ever where you last left them because they don't want to be somewhere else. They will find a way. To chew through the fence, to jump over, to, to, to break out, and to cause havoc. Right? Ultimately, they're separated because goats are aggressive and territorial. And we teach this truth to our children, right? Uh, there, there's a children's book up in my house called Llama Llama and the Bully Goat, okay? So constantly I'm teaching my, my sweet two year old don't trust goats, okay? They're bullies. I was even told by, by one shepherd right, that goats are driven more by their stomachs, by food. That's why they're so aggressive. They're fighting over places to graze. Whereas sheep are much more inclined to be driven by safety. So a sheep's first instinct instead is to run away. You can see then why maybe the shepherd would want to separate them. Jesus uses that metaphor for Judgment Day because it fits so well. The good shepherd comes back and separates out his flock from the world. To put it in the terms of a different parable, the great harvester comes back and separates the wheat from the weeds. Jesus one day will come and separate out all of humanity into two groups. We live in a mixed flock now, but on that day, Christ will separate not by language, not by culture, not by priority, not by national status, not by even works. But by who is a sheep and who is a goat. Christ separates out his flock from the rest of the world with one signifying marker. Those who have received his grace. Those who believe in Christ. It's their view of Jesus that causes the separation. And so, I think we can rightfully say today that you have more in common with a believer in China whom you've never met, whose language you do not speak, whose food you do not understand, and they don't understand ours either, okay? than you do with your unbelieving neighbor. Because on this day, you will be with them. Not other Americans, not other people who speak our language, not other people who look like us, but people who believe like us. This is the separation that Jesus promises, that he says will come. And from that moment on, friends, there is eternal safety for sheep. There are no more bully goats. No more aggressive goats to persecute us, to make us suffer, to cause us harm, to hate us. This is the safety that is decreed by Jesus in verse 34 which shows us the promise or the gift for the sheep, right? Look at verse 34 with me again. Jesus will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. There's three things, three words that sort of jump out at me there, right? The first is inherit. We didn't earn it. Sheep weren't so good and so awesome And so undeniably righteous that the kingdom is theirs by right. No, Jesus has earned the kingdom. And Jesus has called us into his inheritance that he shares with us. And so Jesus tells the sheep, come and inherit, not earn. Don't, Don't lean on what you did. You're not here because of that. You're here because of me. Then, secondly, he says it's a kingdom. It's safe. Right within the borders, there is safety on the king's highway. That his law and his justice will reign. And Jesus is perfect and glorious. And so that safety will be perfect and glorious and finally eternal. That's that word prepared. This is thoughtful, it's an intentional. Thing. And And since when has it been prepared? The foundations of the world. From eternity past, God has been preparing a place for you in Christ. And so that tells us that it will never end, and it will never go away. You see, the sheep receive this reward that Christ achieved for them. And understanding that helps us understand what's next, doesn't it? One commentator uh, helpfully points out that Jesus is not saying that these are people whose good lives have earned them salvation as their right. right. It's a gift. The kingdom is a gift, an inheritance from Christ. But he does deal with works, doesn't he? The commentator goes on to say that Jesus then proceeds to cite the evidence that shows that they do, in fact, belong in the kingdom. Don't get this backwards, friends. What Jesus is about to do by declaring, you know, when he was hungry and thirsty and so on, that's not what sheep have done to earn entrance. It is evidence that those sheep are already there. And already know their king. And already act like them. So let's get into that. Christ proclaims that he was hungry, he was thirsty, he was a stranger, he was naked and sick and in prison, And the sheep did something. Now the sheep respond, right? Sorry, what? What are you talking about? I didn't see you any of these different things. I didn't see any of that. And Jesus says, that which you did for the least of these, my brothers, you did it for me. These verses uh, are incredibly important. But often misused. Most often they're misused as indictments upon Christians. Most often it's the bully goats who pull these words out and make you feel guilty because you haven't been doing them. Well, let me encourage you, friends who says these words? It's the King, it's Jesus. It's his job to judge. It's his job to examine you. It's his job to examine the evidence, not the goats. And he says that he will find his sheep to have been faithful. And so while these verses have a big impact in our society on the examination of Christian behavior, and yes, we ought to take these words seriously and we ought to live these words out. We need to understand that they're coming from Jesus as the judge, and only Jesus gets to do that. And here's what he judges his sheep on the basis of. The most basic, fundamental things in the world. Not extravagance. Not, how much money did you give throughout your life? Well, you didn't meet that threshold. How much time did you give throughout your life? No, you didn't meet that one either. Let's try something else. No, Jesus cites as evidence the fact that sheep fed people and gave them water and clothing and housing and friendship and care. Friends, the calling of the Christian life, as evidenced by Jesus' own words, is a calling to simply meet the basic needs of our neighbors around us. We can always do more. We can always do better. But these words are not here to indict you. They're here to free you. Because the sheep's response is, what are you talking about? And I love that because it's almost as if the sheep, sheep don't even remember. It was such a small thing. Of, of course, I'll, 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 I'll give you water. That's no big deal. And immediately the sheep forget about it. Right? Right? What that does, I think, is it shows that Christ's work in a believer's life is magnificent. It shows a major shift. The sheep not realizing what Jesus is talking about shows that the Holy Spirit's power in the life of a believer has changed us from being so sinful that we can't help but do evil to righteous in Christ that we can't help but to be generous. And it's such a small thing we don't even remember. But it's such an important and big thing for the recipient. Friends, this is the evidence of our faith that we live lives like Jesus lived his, by loving those around him and by providing for them when they cannot provide for themselves. That's the gospel, isn't it? Christ came because we could not save ourselves. He provided salvation for us because we could not get it ourselves. And so Jesus calls us, to love our neighbors as ourselves. So we must be diligent. We must be diligent to nurture the faith that has been given to us in Christ. We must both believe and live out that belief. And I think in that way, doesn't that help us understand James when he says that faith without works is dead? Real faith has accompanying fruit. And that fruit is not cited as reason for entry, but as evidence that we're already there. Finally, Jesus repeats the entire thing, doesn't he? But he does so as a punishment to the goats. You see, Jesus identifies as the least and as the lowly, but now he comes and he doesn't identify with the goats because the goats are the ones who have been mistreating the low and the least of these. And so it's all sort of reversed and negative. Right? And I could go through and I could show you a, a bunch of those negatives, but I just want to give you one. Verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared. Not from the foundations of the world, but prepared for the devil and his angels. This repeats just negative, shows us that Christ gives this as evidence not of their sin, but as their lack of faith. The lack of faith in Jesus. They loved sin too much. They believed in their sin too much, and they did not believe in Christ. Christ is clear. that The goat's life is not watchful. It is not diligent, it is not careful, and it is not lived in submission to Jesus. Now is when everyone's sort of tempted to say, see, you're starting to scare us out of hell and into heaven, right? This is scary. This is hard. Some goats might even say it's harsh and horrible. You're just trying to scare us into believing what you believe. You're just trying to get another church member as though that benefits me. No, friends, I, I totally disagree. I think even the goat who reads this passage shouldn't be scared. I don't think this is terrifying at all. Right? He just, Christ here describes future judgment. Judgment. But he describes a future judgment that everybody wants. The most vehement of goats wants this judgment. The most vehement of of unbelievers, those who hate the gospel and think it's all nonsense. Who think it's nothing. They want this too. And so Jesus shows to those who are listening that they can have it. That the judgment that they want against everyone who has hurt them, everyone who has abused them, everyone who has made them suffer, all of their insecurities who have come to them because of their experiences, everyone who has ever done them wrong can face the music. Everybody wants that. And Jesus promises that that day can and will come. Nobody wants Hitler to get off the hook, do they? Everybody wants Stalin to suffer for what he did. Everybody has someone, at least one, who wronged them so poorly and badly that they want justice. It's not scary to give everybody what they want. Judgment is not scary in that way. judgment that Jesus gives, the, the holding of accountable for the wrongs done in this life are the opposite of scary. They're the great hope of every human being that's ever lived. And here Jesus promises that it will happen, that he will do it. Calvin says that in order to persuade believers to a holiness of life, Christ assures them that the good and the bad will not share alike. This isn't scaring anyone into heaven, right? It's promising or or persuading you that you don't have to be like the people you hate, like the people who have done you wrong. If today you don't believe in Jesus and you think that I'm full of it and I'm just trying to scare you, please listen to this. You do not have to be like those who abused you. You do not have to be like those who made you suffer, who, who you want to face justice. You don't need to become the person you hate. This is the urge, the persuasion of Jesus that judgment is coming. Not to scare you, but to assure you that he offers you something better and something greater. The scary part here isn't Jesus judging the goats. The scary part is that in becoming bitter and hating those who have caused you to suffer, you become just like them. That you become a goat yourself. Friends, this passage is not scary. It is liberating. It is freeing It is freeing to those who hold that Christ is awful because of what's been done to you in this life. Jesus promises and assures us that justice will be done for every little thing. And in that promise, he says, you don't have to be like them. Instead, you can be like Christ. You can be righteous. You can be loving. You can turn the other cheek. You can love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. You can offer water and food to people you don't like. You can be free from their grasp because of King Jesus. Friends, this passage is not to terrify us. This passage urges us. It persuades us to holiness and faithfulness on the basis of this fundamental reality and truth that Jesus Christ is coming again. And he promises his glory and his judgment that we might now be watchful and waiting for that better and more glorious day to come. Friends, you can be free and know eternal rest and peace this moment by giving yourself to Christ, by trusting in him, and by being watchful. King George II will stand in front of Jesus on Judgment Day because he, of all people, knows you stand in the presence of glory. You too will stand in the presence of Jesus on this great and glorious day. Will you be on his right or his left? The choice is yours right now. Let's pray. Father, free us. Free us from our sin. Through the person and the work of Jesus, glorify your son for what he has done. And free us from our bitterness and hatred with the promise of your judgment, with the promise of justice, with the promise of Jesus. Lord, be with us. Make us faithful, watchful people. And come, Lord Jesus. We long for this day. Come. Amen.